so how long have you been blogging for? Oh, I don't know. Uh, six years, I would say. I started uh-huh. around the time I got pregnant. Because uh-huh. I've got this insane mental output. I've got to do something or I go insane. So that was it. I just started researching like mad and then writing about it. Sure. That makes... I can imagine. I mean, obviously, I'm, this is the first time I spoke to you, but we had to book well in advance, didn't we? Because you were so busy. I know, it's a bit ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> My husband's whining about it a bit, but yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. So how come you're so busy? I mean, do you do you employ other people, or is it just a bit crazy on your own? I do employ other people on the training school side, but to be fair, that actually... I'm not sure how much time that saves me. Uh-huh. So it's it's it brings so much administration and management with it. Sure. It's not it's not a free. It's uh-huh. got the other side of the medal, if you like, when you're hiring people. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love my team, but uh, it's a lot of work as well to have people working for you. Yeah, we had Joe Pay on, and she was saying how she employs six other dog trainers, yeah, exactly. and it was like, oh my god! That was... I know, I'm the same. I think it's. Uh-huh. So it, it fluctuates, but yeah, it gets oh, tricky. Wow. And they've just changed the law so that they're not really allowed to be contractors anymore. They have to be full-blown employees and blah, blah, blah. Ooh, it's getting a bit uh, administratively heavy. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that sounds pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, well, you've come onto it yourself. I was going to ask you about um, what is the kind of attitude to dogs over there? In It's Holland, isn't yeah. it? Is it... Do you, do, you, do you find it quite a progressive country when it comes to dogs or, or the opposite? I think it's quite progressive on the whole for the clients we see, but we really advertise to that crowd. Uh-huh. So it's a sure. self-selected sample. Uh, hey, you still see a lot of leash jerking. You still see that the people, I love that expression. People say, um, do you want a prisoner of war or do you want a companion in a dog? And I think okay. that really defines that the two different attitudes and you still have a big time prisoner of war crowd that wants a dog who really listens blindly and when he no longer serves his function then he's just disposed of if he's inconvenient Mm -hmm. and you get a lot of that here too that's an interesting way of putting it um over here i find it easy to measure in how many people have adopted harnesses and how many people are still with the collars and the choke chains etc mike that's a good one um, so if I see, if I go into an area and I see lots of harnesses, then that tends to, to indicate to me that um, that area is doing quite well in terms of progressiveness. <clears throat> I don't know if you use a lot of harnesses. Yeah, everywhere. it's exactly the same thing. That's a good one. So indeed, you uh-huh. see the really progressive people who try to do best for, for their dog. Uh-huh. Uh, what, is, what is your opinion when it comes to kind of harnesses versus more traditional method, more tra- just traditional equipment like collars? I think and... people can get a bit hysterical about it. People can get a bit, it can become really emotional. So, mm-hmm. look, if your dog doesn't pull, I really don't care if you've got a collar on or not. But if you've got a uh-huh. pulling problem, then yes, please, harness. And also, uh-huh, sure. you know, there's a shed load of harnesses that do a lot of harm. Huh? The ones that cut under the armpits and... Yeah, we always have that discussion as well. Um, so we tend to recommend the kind of H harnesses that that sit back behind the elbows. And then also, I I do really like the uh, Julius K9 harnesses, but you have to make sure you fit them in the correct way. 
And you can um, customize them. I use them a lot for dogs who's, um, who are dog-dog aggressive. And you can mm-hmm. actually customize the text on them in huge letters. Oh, just to kind of... Yeah, just as like yeah, a warning. Yeah, so you just say dog in training, give space, or something like that. Yeah, I, I really like the, the, the harnesses. And I think that they also visually appeal to, to a lot of people, especially people with larger That's dogs. That's true. They have that tough... Yeah, they have that toughness to it. Yeah. yeah, they're a great way of getting people that are otherwise... Otherwise would be the sort of people that are kind of macho with the choke chain, etc. They're a great way of getting them into I know what you mean, I know what you mean. I had to laugh the other day because we had this huge bloke who came into the school. And then his other dogs are chihuahuas. He's got, he came with his American bulldog puppy. His other dogs are chihuahuas. Yeah. Yeah, we're getting there. Um, I've got people in classes that, you know, you would think, oh my God. What am I going to see? And actually, they're very positive, lovely people with their dogs. Um, so the stereotype is starting to kind of fade away, I think. Yeah, hopefully. that's very true. I like those surprises when I start to believe in humanity. <laughs> where you think, wow, yeah, I just sure. thought the worst. And actually, you treat your dog great. There's no problem. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I've read a lot of your blogging stuff, but... In terms of your actual day-to-day training, what is it that you're, you're generally kind of getting involved with? Uh, I do behaviour therapy throughout the week, and then one evening a week we have obedience lessons, uh, group lessons. Mm-hmm. So for behaviour, well, actually during the week I also do obedience lessons, but just private. Uh, mm-hmm. And I try to keep the uh, obedience and behaviour work a little bit balanced, because emotionally it can be so, so draining to just do behavior work because uh-huh. people tend sure. to wait until the last moment huh? yeah I've heard a lot of people say well I, I know a lot of people that have spoken about when you do a lot of behavior that you can easily burn oh, out sure. that's what we tend that's the term that we tend to use you just sure. burn out um, I don't do you find that's true of training as well or just behavior I, intellectually training balls me to death so I yeah. couldn't. I don't think I'd be happy doing just training. Okay. It's not right. that I'm not that much into advanced training, so uh-huh. that's just not what interests me. So I keep it really simple. People contact me because they can't get their dog to sustain a good sit. So I never get offered the really exciting training missions, if you know what I mean. Okay. All right. So uh, I like to wreck my brains on the more difficult cases, difficult behavior cases where you're like, okay, what's going on? What are we going to do? I love those intellectually, but yeah, emotionally they drain me. So it's, it's a bit tricky. Oh, that's an interesting viewpoint. I think people, um, dog trainers or dog behaviorists tend to kind of take one or the other. Like at the moment, I'm, I'm more into advanced training than I am behavior stuff. But there's plenty of people that I know that are like you. They they would much rather be doing behaviour yeah, than training. Yeah, for sure. I definitely would. That That's really my passion. That really what, what grabs me. But again, having said that, I can't. Emotionally, you just can't go day in, day out to see families. that are, it's Those are really emotionally loaded conversations. Though. Sure. You, you use the term behaviour therapy. I've not heard that one before. Is that is Is that just a different way of of say working with behavior or is that a, a different oh, approach funny. no that's what they call so here in holland you've got the behavior trainers and the obedience trainers and the behavior trainers are called behavior therapists 
Oh, okay. that's what you would call behaviorist, I guess. Yeah, we would. We just normally say behaviorists. Yeah, fair enough. But, but with behaviorists, you've got that issue of the degrees where you needed a master's or PhD. I'm getting a bit confused with it because depending on what country you're in, you're not allowed to call yourself a behaviorist. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case here, but. Um, yeah, I think there's always confusion about what is a behaviorist anyway, or what what is or behavior therapist, as you said, um, because I think I don't know. I think these terms get thrown around a lot: dog trainer, dog behaviorist, etc. And then there's, there ends up being this confusion about what what, what is what. Um, and also, there's people that will insist that you're part of a particular association before you're a behaviorist or that you've got a degree before you're a behaviorist. But there's no law, as far as I know, in this country that it that means that it's mandatory to no, have anything. No, it's really, really tricky. Probably. I mean, I'm going to start a huge rant. Is it allowed? Can I rant? <laughs> yeah, no, carry it's on, really, please. really, really tricky because on the one hand, we are, for example, at the school, we're really, really picky about who we get on board as trainers and, and half of it is marketing because we want to make sure that the world knows what our vision is and then we have to be consistent through everything we do to stay true to that message, mm -hmm. including what kind of people we hire. So on the one hand, it's more like a PR thing, but on the other hand, I have some really, really, really good trainers on my team who don't have a scientific degree and uh, a relevant scientific degree, that is, and who don't, um, and some of them are still studying to get their certificate, their dog training certificate, but they are well-established scientists. And I don't think that I can hand on heart say, right, this guy does not have a scientific degree in psychology or ethology or zoology, so he's going to be useless. That never happens, never, ever happens. You got some really, really bright yeah. people without the degree, um, and who really know their way around an evidence-based practice. And then you've got some, frankly, useless people with a degree. So it's a bit oh, tricky. I find that it's, yeah, I'm not entirely comfortable with the whole idea of, for that reason, the whole idea of demanding one particular type of qualification from one particular organisation because it's no guarantee whatsoever. But on the other yeah. hand, I don't want it to be a free-for-all, which is what we have right now, and you get some outrageous abuses of, of authority, where people in the name of their professional authority will just spew all sorts of garbage and, and give sometimes very harmful advice. And I think those people would have benefited from a minimum program of certification. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think you put that really well. Um, I think I'm quite lucky in my area where the majority of people are good regardless of whatever qualifications they've got. But, I mean, there's two people in my mind that stick out that are just appalling in, in what they put mm. dogs through. and what they. Well, one of them is more of... And, um, I'm not going to say their names, so I guess it doesn't really matter. But one of them I would pretty much say is a colonised Um just the the level of advice is absolutely ridiculous. It makes you wonder. Um, it really makes you wonder. Is this genuine? Do you believe this? I really sometimes uh -huh. I wonder. Well, I think people watch things like the Dog Whisperer and they read those books and then they literally think that they can do it and thus, you know, that that's all they yeah. need. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, I know, what are we doing? So frustrating as well because this is something I've just read. Actually, I've just reread, I should say, to Karen Pryor, whichever one it was, the 
Ugh. Anyway, one of her books, I forget which, where she says, when people catch me at a party, I'm not working, and they frame the conversation like the dog is a machine that needs fixing, you can feel pretty quickly that that's the type of question. Then she said, I just move on, I don't even bother. If they frame it like mm -hmm. a dog who has a personality, a being, you know, who has emotions and, and there's a problem and I'm ready to work on it in the long term, then she'll open up. And I think now I've become mm -hmm. really, I really liked the way that she put it because I've become really sensitive to that word. Whenever I feel the conversation that my clients start, start talking about, whenever I feel that's going towards fix him, you have four weeks to fix him, and that sort of, uh, that sort of language, I address it immediately. Sure. I just really, really make sure that I address their expectations. And sometimes mm -hmm. it doesn't go through, but that's fine. I just keep addressing it. I just keep saying that's just not a realistic goal. That is not how I frame it. Of course, you don't do it in such yeah. a direct way, but I just really make sure that by the time the session's over, that yeah. I've said my piece about that. Because there's nothing more toxic, I find, than having these two two different approaches. So the behaviorist wants one thing, and then the client wants something completely different. Do you, where do you think that expectation comes from? Do you think it's, it's traditional training years ago where you you know more like residential training i don't know where, i think where lots do you think of things from? uh we have a bias everybody does of course for you know everybody's so busy and 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 our time is there's so much pressure on our time of course we're gonna really assume and value the easy solution there's also a societal thing where yeah a dog is in this uncomfortable position between a child and a possession and sometimes mm -hmm. there's a line in the sand where people go, right, it is just a dog. And to a certain extent, I think they're right. To a certain extent, when, where do you draw the line? Like how many hours a week, how many hundreds of dollars are you going to spend? It's, it's a really, really tough societal discussion to have because if you look at it from a developing nation's perspective, it's ridiculous how much we, you know, how much time and energy and resources we put into our dogs. I am one of those. I am one of those who will just walk through fire for my dog. But I can understand that, you know, some of my friends are really quite shocked about it. Because <laughs> they think, yeah, at the end of the day, it's just yeah. a dog. Like, for example, there is um, uh, a, somebody I know, and he knows someone whose dog became incontinent from old age. And then she started researching um, uh, diaper solutions, nappies. And my friend, was he just could not, mm -hmm. could not comprehend that. He thought, yeah, dog incontinent uh -huh. and dog. That's it. And I think yeah, okay. there's a lot of that. There's really a lot of that where people think, right, well, if it's not a quick fix, then that's pretty much all we can wrap our head around, a quick fix. Because, yeah, there's limits to how much how many resources we can throw in that dog. Yeah, you mentioned um, developing countries, and I think when you go over there, the dog uh, changes from what we consider another right, being to more of an object. And uh, Yeah, and I guess that's why um, maybe people have this attitude, because with other objects, uh, your phone, your computer, right. etc., it is a yeah. case of just dropping it off a lot of the time. 
And I can really relate in this sense because I hate computers. I really hate computers with a passion. I, I, there's no words. But, mm-hmm. but that's the thing. I get outraged when I actually have to look into something in order to fix my problem. That it's, it, I get absolutely outraged because I think, why? You know, why? That this should not be that complicated. And I think people have that expectation that idyllic my dog will come out like Lassie out of the box and anything less than, then he's not suitable as a family dog and I'll just give him up. Uh-huh. I was talking to um, Eric Brad yesterday um, and he yeah, comes he from an IT yeah, background. Yeah. And he, yeah, he made loads of analogies between the professions um, and he was talking about the different types of consultants you get in IT, whereas one person will just, um, he said, like, type A person will come and just fix your computer, and type B person will come, and he'll fix your computer, but he'll walk you through the whole process and teach you why it's going on, etc., etc. And then he was relating that to dog training and how he prefers us as right, dog trainers to be a type B person. But on the other hand, not, um, sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but Nando Brown, no, right, uh, he made the uh, opposite remark. He says, we tend to over-explain and then we just drown them in details. And I have to say I do that and it's so hard for me not to do that because it's a passion and I want them to know it all. And at the end of the day, my session is not five hours long. Yeah. Okay, we we, we actually spoke about that because I put that point to him. Um, with And he was he, then he started going off on a remark about... Um, well, he he calls it fire hosing. Um, so where someone just wants the uh, sip right. of water and you yeah. get a fire hose and blast it in their face, essentially. Um, and he was just talking about how it's a balance between you want to teach them, but you also don't want to throw so much information at them. That they're like, oh, my God, I can't take this in. You know what's helped me a lot trying to become better at that? Less of a fire hoser. <laughs> Um, Risa Van Fleet uh-huh, sure. has no idea how to pronounce her name but she wrote that book The Human Side of Dog Training or Human Half of Dog Training and that book really breaks uh-huh. it down so that you know how to be super effective how to deal with clients who just don't get it how to deal with clients who are stuck in their own way and it's really brilliant it's a really brilliant book and it's helped me a lot it's changed the way I give my consults this podcast is becoming a hell of an advert for, for that book because we actually <laughs> spoke about that yesterday. <laughs> we are going to have to well, try and convince her to come on the podcast because yes. yes. I, I love she's that book really, as well. She's really busy, of course, but she's a lovely person, very uh-huh. approachable. No, uh-huh. but she's have you, have you met her before? Yeah, it's like an electronic friend. So we've uh, we've we've oh, had okay. a lot to do with right, each other enough. over the over the past few years. I have a lot of time for her. I think she's a she's a great person. Yeah, I spent some time on her Facebook group, and I thought it was great. I love how involved she gets. She's not one of these authors that just no, sits back. No, <laughs> definitely not. You know, I was an administrator for that group for a bit, and I just ran out of time. It was just I can't give it the, you know, I just can't give it that much time, which was a shame because it's a brilliant group. It's a really nice group. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I think, thinking back, the authors that I've really got into have been the ones that have got involved in the community and, and spoke to people, and if you have a question, you can message them. Yeah, for sure. I really like that. Because at the end of the day, you read the book, and then, of course, you forget half of it, because life, you know, life goes on. Sure. 
when I read your blog, it's quite obvious you come from, or you think of things in a very scientific way. Like, what role do you think science has think in doctrining? Oh, my goodness. The science question. <laughs> yeah, so science is, the my, science uh, question. It's, it's my thing. Huh? It's my passion. It's my everything. But um, I think rather than talk about science as a whole, I would like to bring it down to the concept of evidence-based. If only we could bring okay. ourselves, every profession, I believe, needs to do that, bring ourselves to try to operate in as evidence-based a way possible, I think the world will be a way better place. And this means mm -hmm. trying to stay away from ideology. And if you do speak out of ideology, because of course we're all human, then make it clear to the client that this is my preference from an ethical perspective rather than anything else. Just try to make it clear because I think we all, in all good faith, we tend to spread a lot of, a lot of rubbish not knowing it, myself included, unless we are constant skeptics about what we ourselves say to the world. Sure. And it's hard work and nobody thanks you for it. <laughs> It's very hard work, but then, you know, you can, uh -huh. you can go to bed at night knowing you've done your best to spread something that resembles reality rather than something that suits us. How can we make sure, as dog trainers, that we are working from a scientific front? Do we, should we be more actively pursuing the scientific papers I should say when they not. come out? I should say everybody's or... got their job and... You're not going to do yourself any favor. Reading an article properly takes minimum four hours if you really want to read it properly and not just read the abstract. And there is no way that you can keep up. There's also an issue with the sample sizes in dog behavior studies are ridiculously small because we have no funding. So it's tricky. It's really tricky. So, yeah, the, the ideal, absolute ideal is to read a systematic review paper on anything uh, but those aren't there, so you can just read from yeah the best. The best that you can read is uh, from people who are good at vulgarizing, popularizing science, and get it from them. Yeah, well, people like you well, in your blog, and then also, um, I guess there are people that put. I get, well, you might disagree with me, but there are people that put those scientific views and. Um, into speeches quite well and into seminars quite well. So again, we were talking about camera mirrors yesterday. What is his background? Seems to do that quite well. I don't think he was. Does he have an academic background? I don't remember. No, I could be wrong. Uh, as I don't well, know. I might like... be completely wrong. Um, but we. But we were talking about. Oh, what were we talking about? I can't remember now. We had a um, discussion about. Oh, mm -hmm. it was sequential learning. No. Are you familiar with that? Um, it's where you, you teach the dog um, to do things in sequence. So say you want your dog to do a yeah. spin, then a down. Yeah. You would say spin down, and then the dog would learn, or the dog would do a spin and then a down, okay, instead so of kind of looking commands, at you confused. Not, training, not just one command, and then he just executes a whole bunch of behavior. Uh, it's, I guess it's two commands, yeah, but you're yeah, saying yeah, it yeah. at once. So it's not, um, yeah, sure. Um, again, we're actually, I think me and Eric spoke more about Talking the advanced training side of things, so. Eric is really good at it. He's also got that, you know, he's got that passion for it. Uh -huh. 
Oh, Eric's brilliant. I mean, I spoke to him for an hour podcast yesterday. Then we <laughs> ended up speaking for another 40 minutes after the podcast. And the day before, we'd oh, already had an hour conversation on the phone. He's one of those people that just keeps... Yeah, you get talking to him and it's really hard to <laughs> stop. I know he'd be yeah, laughing. Really he's he's like good him. fun. I used to do them actually a long time ago. <clears throat> yeah, when I was looking through your blog, I did I did come across that. Did you find? Because you do, um, I noticed you interview quite a lot of people that are involved in different dog sports. Did you find uh, there were any dog sports that? you disagreed with or you didn't I'm feel comfortable, comfortable with? with most dog sports because it's so easy to objectify the dog. So that's what makes me a bit uncomfortable. I imagine that as a participant, if you're a diehard fan of it, I imagine it's very tempting to put the dog second to performance. And I'm not saying everybody does it, but I'm saying it's an environment that can really create that sort of temptation. So that's where I always want mm-hmm. it. And service dogs are the same. It's, uh, it takes a lot of scrutiny to make sure that we keep asking ourselves, okay, is the dog getting something out of it too? Is he really enjoying it? And there's a shed load of dog sports that they must do. Right, like um, sheep herding. Uh, for a border collie, I know that some border collies in my uh, caseload were just going completely balmy, and all they needed was that type of mental stimulation, and then they were fine as rain. So I'm absolutely not saying uh-huh. that it's bad across, you know, all across. But I do have that concern. Mm-hmm. I do wonder often, how do we safeguard ourselves against pushing the dogs beyond what is good for the dogs, just out of pride type thing? Sure. Yeah, I was going to... So, I mean, how do you think that we can get around that or get over that issue? Do you, do you think that we should do away with some sports or do you just think that we need to be very conscious when we're, I know we're nothing doing about that world. I really don't. So I wouldn't want to make a really big, big, broad judgment about it. I really don't know enough about dog sports. Fair enough. Um, so how did you get involved in training? Oh, that's a good question. It's... It's really corny, but <laughs> it was sort of a calling, and then it sneaks up on you, and then before you know it, you do it. So I'm, uh, uh-huh. I can't do things in half. <laughs> so if I'm interested in something, then I have to read about it about 16 hours a day and read the most technical things. Otherwise, I feel I don't sure. know much about it, and I still don't think I know much about it. But <laughs> and then at some stage, I had a foster dog. And he had a behavior problem, and then my own dog started be, uh, developing behavior problems. And that's how it starts, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. That's always how it starts. That's the, that's the story. <laughs> um, yeah. So from yeah. there, you got into behavior, assumably. Pretty much more than training. Yeah, for me, training is more a means to an end. I mean, I know people who know so much, like James O'Hare, or is it O'Hare, sorry, he knows so much about the uh, the ABCs, you know, the actual behaviorist aspect of the equation. And I'm nowhere near as fluent. So I, uh-huh. I do use the ABCs, of course, in my analyses, but it's not central. 
So to me, it's not all about the the antecedents, the sure. trigger, operant conditioning. It plays a big part. It's far from the only thing. So I, uh-huh. I draw a lot from comparative psychology. Um, a big, big source of reference for me is the the human uh, DSM, which I find quite useful. Um, so I see it more as okay. uh, psychopathology, I guess, is more my angle. I try to see where there is a okay. dysfunction in the dog, and then and then we try to sort out the context. But for, sort out the context as in how do we retrain a different response to particular triggers? But sometimes it goes beyond that. Like generalized anxiety is not about a particular trigger. You know what I mean? Mhm. Yeah, I had this conversation a little bit with David Ryan when we were talking about because I was asking him about. He he's made a statement that he thinks he can train or work with any dog. Um, and then I said, I'm not sure. What about dogs with issues, like you said about generalised anxiety, or issues that are yeah. really mental health issues, dog mental health issues? Um, and he just said that he's not a vet, so that's not no, really That's also really interesting, because ground, I, f- but, I find um, it fascinating. Psychopathology is really my thing. That sounds bad. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have a t-shirt made. Uh-huh. Psychopathology is my thing. But um, yeah. I work a lot with a vet behaviourist and there, those issues are so, so forefront. Okay, what is medical? What is mental? What is training? And I also work very closely with a huge network of vet practices and there I also have to be super conscious about that line. Okay, what is physical? What is not? And it's really, really fascinating. So we're um, building processes now in all these collaborations that I have with these people. We're actually trying to clean them up, the processes, and formalizing them into yeah, best practices so that receptionists know when to steer the customer sure. where. And it's really nice to stop and think of, yeah, of those boundaries because we have to, because we have to make those processes Yeah, I think vet referrals are becoming much more commonplace over here, certainly. Um, where it, I think it's almost becoming taboo now not to not to have a, a vet referral or to do vet referrals um, with behaviour cases. Certainly ones that aren't... I was going to say certainly ones that aren't clearly not veterinary, no, but then I guess sometimes it does, it's not so, obvious. I'm so lucky because... Every Friday, I just have my little office at the vets, and that's where I do my consults, every Friday morning. So I've always got a sounding board. I can always tell them if I think, okay, do you Uh guys think I should send them to you first for a physical? And that's brilliant. It's really brilliant to have this close relationship. It really helps so much, and I think it really does the dogs and the owners a huge favor because you're not wasting time on interventions that, yeah, that are just not the best intervention at the time. Yeah, that sounds really excellent. I think that sounds ideal. Unfortunately, the majority of us don't have those yeah, kind of resources. Yeah, really it's been amazing it if we did. And it was, uh, it's, it's tough because I think a lot of people court the vet because what the vet says is gospel for the general public. So the vets get harassed all the time for these referral relationships. So I can imagine that they're getting a little bit resistant and a little bit uh-huh. sceptical when, you know, that's like the 17th person who says, will you please, yeah, will you please just uh, recommend my services? So it is tricky. It's really tricky. 
Yeah, well, it's a difficult one because it, as a as a dog trainer or a behaviorist, you want to have that relationship so that you can do things in the best way, as well as from a business standpoint, sure. it makes sense to have. Because that brings me on to another hot button issue, and that is the how legitimate these professions are. It's so tricky in the eye of the public. Maybe it's in my head, but I always get the feeling that I've got to get over a little hurdle of um, of scepticism on practically every client's part. They just really think that it's a bit of a fluffy profession, that they really need to see the money before they start believing that it actually can be really effective. I, I Maybe it's in my head, but I always feel sure, I have okay. to really demonstrate some effectiveness before I can get, you know, I can really get them on board. This, this, this. I think that's probably fair more enough. of an issue yeah, with behaviour than it is training. Because, I mean, with training, it's pretty easily yeah. done in the sense that, okay, that's a finite, concrete objective that you have, and I either say yes or no. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think we're both going to agree on something here. How, how uh, do you feel about, about pet communicators? Pet communicators? Yeah. So people that... I've interviewed one. <laughs> ...claim to be psychic and... Look, I'm evidence-based. Uh-huh. and I don't know if you've... You know, that'll be my... Yeah. my I'm, um, I'm really passionate about it. Like, like by my superhero is Ben Goldacre. How do I feel about animal communicators? It's, I'm, I'm a very, very... Uh-huh. deeply passionate scientific skeptic so i actually uh talked to one who was open to um open to talking about it and uh i'm not sold whatsoever uh-huh. i'm ex- i'm exactly the same as you i'm really skeptic and it frustrates me in a way because you i mean you're talking about um well, I'm going to sound really horrible now, but you're talking about a profe- our profession coming across as fluffy or not real. That to me is well, I don't know. I'm, I'm a skeptic. And, and and the it thing just is, seems ridiculous to me. There's but. also the whole where's the harm? I'm a big advocate against pseudoscience, obviously, <laughs> and uh, exactly. Well, well, you say where's the harm, but. That could be that could be money money better spent if someone's going to a pet communicator first, spending all their money that they could or have been spending with a reputable behaviour. Whatever that might be was quote unquote fixed, and the dog's harmed in the process from uh-huh. you know, Oh yeah, that's neglect. a good point as well. Yeah, so yeah. I think at best it's misguided. Uh-huh. At worst, it's con artistry. Mm-hmm. I didn't get a chance to read it oh, fully, but I goodness. saw you had an article on vaccinations. Like Why do I write really political articles? <laughs> no, it's all right. It makes for interesting conversation. Um, I had to skim it because I didn't have much time. But I saw that you were talking about... Um, well, first of all, you are talking about puppies, weren't you, that, uh, that weren't vaccinated? vaccinated because they have to have it in the initial one and then two okay. boosters over the course of six weeks. Because um, I think most people agree, even people that are kind of anti-vac, most people agree that puppies should be fully vaccinated and then um, you go through their life and 
occasionally teeter test them. If they come back without the immunity, that, then you vaccinate the, them, etc. Is et that cetera. the consensus but how pretty much in, uh, in Britain? Well, I think that's the way the dog no. community feels. <laughs> I don't think that's the way the veterinary community feels. No, I think, well, for the reasons that I... But the article um, was mega long, just like all my articles. <laughs> but uh, I don't know how to write short. Sure. But, uh, yeah, you have a whole bunch of issues with herd immunity. And it's you have the same with the anti-vax crowd now uh, on the human, uh, human level. Huh? So there are animals just like mm-hmm. a pup who's just had his first vaccination and a pup can't walk through the woods because mm-hmm. yeah because somebody decided not to uh not to uh, vaccinate their dog but i i see what you're saying about the um, uh the titus it's just the titus from a economical perspective don't make that much sense a lot of people uh will tell me i'm anti-vax because the titus uh, would do just the same in terms of safety if I keep an eye on it. Like I know that he's not immunocompromised, so uh, uh-huh. it's really just a big nasty scheme by the vet community. And then I'm like, I don't know how it is for you, but if you look at the compare the prices of a titer and the prices of a vaccine, you've spent way more money. And by the way, your uh, uh-huh. titers need to be super recent. So every time you want to go to a new training school, get a new dog walking service. Anybody who's serious about running their business will need some kind of a statement, right? So either the vaccination leaflet, booklet, or, or the, or the titer. You have a dog pension or whatever. So then mm-hmm. potentially they have to just go back, well, every two months to get a new titer and that costs a fortune. It costs way more. At least here it does. I just... mm-hmm. I'm not really sure what the price is on one. But I thought that they were cheaper than vaccinations. But then you're taking a risk because if you don't have the immunity, you're going to have to pay for a vaccination, and then that's going to overall it's going to cost more. Uh, No, there might be a regional regional difference. But um, last I looked into it, the titers were like three times more expensive here than. Yeah, that's right. I don't than the vaccinations. Oh wow! I don't think that's the case here, but I, I don't the, want to say for sure. Behind the computer and do a lot of, uh, and, and they have to wait for a bit because it has to stand. I think it was like for forty minutes or something, but they can't just do something else in between because if they forget, blah blah blah. It's procedurally apparently it's really annoying to do it's quite labour intensive. So what do you, f- what do you feel is is the best course? Do you feel like uh, yearly vaccinations are? The- I don't. I'm qualified to answer it. I can just say my personal preference is vaccinations every year and I am aware that it's overshooting the mark and I'm aware that there's a lot of dogs who stay immunized way past the one-year booster. But having said that also, you don't always get vaccinated against the same disease yearly, of course. So once every three years during your yearly Uh thing, you just get a three-year booster for something. That's not something people are aware of. So they think every year they get uh-huh. vaccinated so, against the same disease, and that's true to some diseases. I think leptospirosis, but I could be wrong. So some diseases have yearly boosters, but some of them have three yearly boosters, and they're just worked into that yearly cocktail. So you wouldn't know. You would think, oh, my God, why on earth would uh-huh. I uh, be vaccinated every year for this? But you're not. I'm being a bit confusing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Uh, no, 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 that's fine. 
so it sounds like your opinion is I'm, I'll vaccinate yearly because um, you feel like the risk isn't worth taking and it doesn't That's right. cause harm to do it over and over again. Okay. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, I I I would say that I I haven't done enough research, but from what I've read, I would probably side more with. I think the best way of doing it would probably be yearly teeter tests oh, and then vaccinate I accordingly. I'm probably wrong. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure that. No, yeah, I think you're right. I'm I mean, pretty sure that it's teeter, but I might be wrong. We'll probably get. <laughs> It, we, we might pronounce it differently. We might both be right. Right. So we'll see what we'll see what people say. But yeah. So yeah, because it seems to that's price out of the equation. So I mean, if you money no object, then surely it would be better to do a yearly teeter test and then um, before you vaccinate. Yes and no. I just still. This is where I'm more talking out of ideology rather than evidence. I haven't done any serious research on this, so I'm just going by. Do you know what? I'm just going to keep doing what I've always done because uh, I know that it uh-huh. really does next to no harm. I mean, if there is, it's extremely rare when a dog does have an adverse reaction. Uh-huh. Um, but. I don't feel I have a qualified uh-huh. opinion about this. Uh-huh. Yeah. I thought you were a science communicator. You I you, you wrote blogs on not, this, Laura. I can just say what I do for my own for my own job. This is this is um epidemiology question. And yeah, and I uh-huh. I, I know you're wanna, not. on medical issues I'm being really, really careful <laughs> to make it clear that I'm uh-huh. not a bit you... <laughs> maker. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Sure. Everyone, basically, <laughs> everyone should disregard the last ten minutes of well, our conversation because yeah, neither of us are qualified so what I did to talk was, about it. The blog that I wrote was I'm again as a scientific <clears throat> skeptic, which is more a philosophical position than anything else. Uh, I was very, very skeptical about the human anti-vax movement. I looked into it, uh, and it really confirmed my uh, position. And then I was surprised to find out there was the equivalent on the dog front. And that's what got me curious. So instead of rejecting it firsthand, thinking, yeah, it's probably rubbish, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to give it a chance and look into it. And that's why I started talking to uh, uh, the vets mm-hmm. with, whom, uh, with whom I work a lot. Uh, so I started talking to them, and I started breaking all of the arguments that had been put across my desk, all of the anti-vax arguments, but that's pretty much where it where it stayed at. Sure. Yeah, I think the human anti-vac movement is clearly ridiculous, um, and even people that are anti-vac or I don't even like to call it anti-vac in dogs because I think yeah, that a lot of people still vac; they just don't do it yearly. So I don't know if you'd consider that. Um. But the human anti-vac, I, I think, yeah, I was going to say, even people that are kind of anti-vac in dogs <laughs> I'm think glad that we the agree human on anti-vac that. <laughs> is ridiculous on large. Oh, goodness. That really gets my go. Um, yeah. And dangerous. It, it's, it is. It, it, it's something that you can legit, legit, legitimately get angry yeah, about. Yeah, it's endangering children, it puts, it puts people, people at risk. who are immunocompromised. It's, and it's really a first world luxury mm. to just 
know what? I can. I want to be natural now. Oh yes. Yeah, sure. Not benefit from the last fifty years. <laughs> okay, do do your own thing, but not yeah. don't decide that for your kids, please. Yeah. Okay. Um. So you've interviewed quite a lot of people at this point. What are the ones that really stand out to you, or <sighs> do you have a favourite? The ones that I enjoy the most in a cringy sort of way, are the ones where we know from the start that we completely disagree on some very fundamental points. And those are really challenging, okay. but they're really enjoyable because, because they're so challenging. Because uh-huh. you want to keep it extremely respectful and polite, and I don't want to sure. be presumptuous. I could be totally wrong. And um, I love the, um, yeah, the acrobatics of it. I really so that's like when I spoke to the um, I spoke to the yeah. animal communicator. It was intense, you know. It was really, sure. really intense. Uh, um, okay, I was going to say I was going to ask the same question about books as well. Oh, there's I so mean, many. I still you've done a lot of book reviews. Uh, wh- yeah. So I well, do people contact you to do book reviews, or do, is I it just something that you doing just? It. Take upon initiative, and then I started receiving a lot of books, uh, and then I started to be proactive and contacting uh-huh. the big, uh, um, the big editors. <laughs> Dude, yeah, this one's coming out. <laughs> I don't want to pay for it. To do the it, ones you I'll wanted like to. And having said that, there is no guarantee the review will be good. Uh-huh. So you know, take the risk or not. This is my address. Yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise, do you actually say that as well? On me to write. Oh, good. Okay positive reviews and then that dilutes the whole idea because then people are going to go right but every single book uh-huh. you've put in here is four stars so <laughs> so no no i do i do tell yeah. them and it's not an attractive proposal but most of them say yes and then sometimes you do end up with that really awkward mm-hmm. awkward moment where it is the worst piece of rag that you've ever written that you've ever read and you've got to kindly Explain that. <laughs> but I am kind uh, when, when it's a book I really, sure. really disliked. And I, I think a book that's not making uh, very valid statements, etc. Um, I, I word it very kindly. I really don't believe in destroying somebody's, you know, somebody's pride just, just because you write a book review. And I also don't write it in Amazon sure. then. So if it's a really poor review, I just keep it to my uh, book review page. And I tell the owner, and we tend to talk about it as well. And it, but mm-hmm. to be honest, in all these years I've been doing it, there's only one who got really annoyed. So, you know, that's fair enough. I do try to be really kind. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh-huh. So, uh, were you reading a lot of books anyway? Yeah, then, it's like, I'm like a natural progression. Or? If you don't give me a walk, I go sort of insane. So I really need to read, like, Olympic champion. Or I, it's just... Okay. Uh, it's like mental stimulation for a border collie might be a better analogy. <laughs> if I don't have it, I just, yeah, I just go a bit uh-huh. stir crazy. I uh-huh. just need to so crunch you... some, uh, some material in my mind. Uh, is it always uh, dog training books or is it more wide than that? It's not so much dog training nowadays. Nowadays I'm really, really into biopsychology, neuropsychology, um, just psychopathology, just um, uh, the DSM. I'm really into that. Animal Madness, I don't, I don't know if you've read it. Mm-hmm. I really liked it. I liked it so much. No. It's written by a science historian, I believe. 
and anyway, it's a, it's a brilliant book because it looks at certain dog behavior problems from a um, psychiatric perspective. So this is the sort of psychiatric disorder mm-hmm. this oh, okay, girl, cool. dog would qualify for if you know if he was seen by a psychiatrist type thing. Super interesting. And then she looks into the research into mm-hmm. that sort of problems in zoo animals, etc. And this is like valid valid research of comparative psychology thing in my mind at the moment because I started. Uh, in this job and separation anxiety was like the classic, right? Everybody would have at least two, three of these cases a week. And I used to go, no problem. And I'd just, you know, pull up my sleeves and follow the textbook scenarios. And then I found out, it was like, oh my God, that's not working. That's not working. And it's working with this dog, but not that one. And then I opened up a Pandora's box of complexity and I realized that I'd completely oversimplified it. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's really difficult in terms of fitting it in with the life of people as well, because people have to go to work, yeah. they have to leave the dog, just they have to. And so it's, I mean, for management in other issues, you could, so say that you have dog reactivity. Oh, OK, well, we just avoid dogs for the next few weeks and, until we do our work, etc., etc. Well, you can't do that with separation right. anxiety yeah. because people have to go. They have to leave the dog. And they think you're insane. So it's, like, it's a really difficult are, one. I can't leave the house at all outside of the training sessions for how long <laughs> and you're like okay we will help you find logistical solutions but indeed every time the dog might sanitize uh-huh. and then you have to start again and it's it's a tough sell it's not a it's not a good sell yeah i think that i think that the community as a whole is but you know really what struggling helped me a lot I, is but, to be on the yeah. other end on the other side i just once I was the client, I think I even wrote a blog about that. Once I was on the client side of things, uh, so I contacted the vet behaviorist. I first contacted a colleague, and then she referred me to the vet behaviorist. And I just recognized all of the behaviors in myself that I saw my clients do and which were frustrating me. It was like, seriously? It literally took sure. me five weeks to dare open her reports. It's ridiculous. And I have clients who do that, and I get frustrated, uh-huh. and I think, come on, I've put in time and energy, I've invested in you, get back to me. And every single thing that Mm -hmm. my clients did that I couldn't understand, I found myself doing, and that was a brilliant process to go through professionally. Personally, I could have done without it, but professionally, professionally, it was really an eye-opener. It was insane. (laughs) I could tick, literally tick all the boxes. Denial, just you name it, I did it all. What kind of measures do you feel like oh, are best goodness. for prevention There's of so separation many. anxiety? I think, first of some dogs are just so predisposed, forget about it. I think in an ideal world, I would like for people to um, be ready for the possibility that their dog can't be alone. And then we'll work from there. I think it's a bit harsh, but if you both work full time, mm-hmm. please question what you're going to do if it goes wrong. That's a really, yeah, it's, it's a tough message, but mm-hmm. that's really how I feel sometimes. I see single people who work full time and don't have, um, and they're expats. I work with expats a lot with uh, foreigners who uh, move for Shell, etc. Um, sure. And there, I do sometimes feel: Did you consider this? Did you weigh that decision the way it should have been weighed? Because yeah, your dog can't stay alone. Uh-huh. Now what? And uh, those are people who work 80-hour weeks, huh? not just... Uh... Uh-huh. 
So, yeah, that's my first prevention thing is please have a plan B so that we have the time to work on it should there be a problem. Please don't assume the dog can stay alone without being distressed. And I think this is also leading us to a very interesting area of uh, what is normal in terms of that will not fit with my life, therefore it's abnormal. And that is part of what a dog needs. They need a lot of social contact and a lot of mental stimulation. So that is a normal need. What Mm -hmm. is normal is that we can't satisfy that need and what I find really abnormal is how well a lot of dogs can take isolation. Do you ever find that you kind of Uh, end up talking about rehoming? I don't have a taboo against rehoming. It's it's tough for the owner but uh, I prefer if I think they're wasting their time with me then they're going to know it pretty soon and then I will help a lot with the whole emotional process of, of getting them to accept it. I won't convince them, but I will definitely, if I see that that's mm-hmm. the best outcome for both um, the people and the dog, then it's not something I'm going to shy away from saying. Of course, there's a time and a place and, and there's a way of saying it because, yeah, it's a very hard conversation to have. <coughs> so it sounds like you've, but it sounds like you've also done quite a bit of research on kind of human emotion and and like helping people through uh, things like that. And, teaching, and teaching, I really and have. That's going to be my next one. I really have so much to learn on the on teaching. I'm the fire hose type. <laughs> Still, I try uh-huh. to fight it, but uh, so I have a lot to learn there. Yeah, sure. Uh, on the human uh, emotions, I had to break it down myself because I'm looking at humans like like any zoologist. I just, you guys are just a species. Like I'm part of it, but. It's a species which has certain emotions and certain behaviors and certain predispositions. And when you computerize it that way, then, yeah, you end up being able to relate with people quite easily. Because you can predict that. I sound like a computer, but you know what I mean, right? Mm -hmm. You can sort of predict their reaction to stuff. You can predict how you would react to stuff. So is your interest um, in animals wider than dogs? Because you obviously did a zoology degree. Is that right? Um, so are you, I mean, you've, you've ended up specializing in dogs, I guess, but it, is, your, is your interest wider than dogs? Have you done a lot of work with other animals? With, uh, with dogs, and personally, I'm just an animal nut. Like, uh, even when I was little, I nearly got arrested mm-hmm. in America for shouting at a cop for shining his light in an alligator's eye. <laughs> you know, I just, I... Yeah, I lose it if, <laughs> yeah. if I think that somebody is not handling an animal with the respect that they should. I That's something I find very hard to bear, and that's always been there. And uh-huh. my dad told me also he was like that, which is hilarious, because I had no idea. But uh, It just, I wondered why you went, chose the route of zoology yeah, as opposed know, to maybe actually, animal behaviour. I mean, it's easy to regret it, but that served no purpose, but... I don't know. I also like the foundation that I got in zoology. It's really broad. I really love, love, love evolutionary biology, for example. And it gets fiendishly complicated when you get into the maths of it. And I love that, Uh, you know, game theory and that sort of stuff. So I'm really, really happy that I got that background and physiology and it's a very broad background. We did we did a lot of that, a lot of genetics, which you don't necessarily do with uh, when you do go straight into ethology. Sure. 
Mm-hmm. So you have your blog, is but you also have your website. Oh, they can don't find you? me um, if they want. Where can people uh, find dog you? Training, then they can find me on ohmydogschool.com. So it's like oh my god, except it's dog. Uh, and that's obviously just locally. And mm-hmm. then I also do consults, but that's worldwide uh, for behaviour. And that's on canisbonus.com. So that's C-A-N-I-S-B-O-N-U-S. So canisbonus. The worst name ever for marketing. <laughs> it's <coughs> facebook.com forward slash canisbonus okay, cool. forward slash. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, same here. Right, fair enough. <coughs> All right, well, it's been great talking to you. Yeah, yes, please. Thanks, that was uh, lovely. Thanks for coming on. We'll have to do it again sometime.